Kevin, I disappointed my dog this week. It takes a lot to disappoint a dog. My dog, I have a special relation with my dog, by the way. Her name is Penelope, and I know many of you have dogs, but none of your dogs love you as much as my dog loves me. That's just the way it is. I'm sorry. Uh, our schedules are matched, and uh, you know we go to the bathroom at the same time. She's always waiting at the back door. As soon as I come out of the bathroom, she's literally waiting right there for me. If I go in the kitchen for a meal, she's going in the kitchen for a meal. If I'm going in for a snack, she's getting a snack. She, of all my children, she's the only one that greets me at the door every time I come home. And I disappointed her this week because this dog, it gets more human, she gets more human food than dog food. And I was in the kitchen making something and she came in and she's expecting some food from me. And her dog bowl has dog food in it and I didn't have any extra food to give her. And she kept looking at me and pacing and looking at me. I'm just sure I was going to give her some food. And when she was Certain I wasn't, as I was leaving the kitchen, I see her standing over the dog bowl, her face right over the food, just looking right at me. And I could see in her eyes, she's saying, I still love you, I'm just disappointed in you. And as I left, I heard her, just the tone and how she was crunching her food was disappointment. Well, for me, I am deeply blessed and privileged to have the responsibility to feed you one spiritual meal a week. And I love doing it. And I, it would, I don't do it to please you. I do it to please Jesus. But I know that Jesus would be disappointed if you were disappointed. If you, if you walk away from this sermon with the same look on your face that Penelope had on hers, I would be disappointed. I think Jesus would be disappointed. I, I labor to try to feed you well, and I, and I hope that you are. That's my prayer. And so with that in mind, let's dig in right away. Let's go to Genesis chapter 22. I'm excited, particularly about this meal. I, I am very excited. If you're close to me, chances are you've heard a portion of this sermon this week already because I was so excited. I couldn't hold it in. And uh, we're looking at... Jesus in the Old Testament. And so today we're going to look at Jesus in Genesis chapter 22 in the sacrifice of Isaac. But first, let's go ahead and read uh, this passage fully. And then once we have re-familiarized ourselves with it, then we'll go back through it bite by bite and identify the elements that this story has in common with the gospel. And I think as we read it this first time through, perhaps... You will uh, even identify all of them on our first pass. But let's go ahead and read the story. The true account, Genesis chapter 22. And after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. 
And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, I'm sorry, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and they went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. What a beautiful story. Could you see Jesus Christ? Could you see the gospel throughout all of that? Let's look at these elements one at a time and reflect on them. Some of them will take more time than others to reflect on. But first, let's look at a servant's faith. A servant's faith. We see Abraham is going to be the type. Jesus, the prototype. And then we're going to apply that to us. But first, let's consider Abraham's faith. We see Abraham's faith on display in verses 1 through 5. First of all, in his answering, he says, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This is a recurring theme in Abraham's life. Starting a journey only to find out where it's going to end after he has the faith to start the journey. So we see faith there. We see faith in Abraham's immediate obedience. It says in verse 3, So Abraham rose early in the morning, very next day. He did not delay. Uh, one of the things my dad always taught me when I was a kid, delayed obedience is disobedience. And Abraham had faith, not more time with his son, not to give his mother a little more time with her boy. He rose early the next morning and went out to obey the Lord. We see his faith on display 
finally, and maybe ultimately, we see his faith on display in verse 5, where he tells his servants to stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Somehow, Abraham had this faith that they were going to go up on the mountain, he was going to sacrifice his son, and then both of them would come back together again. He had so much faith in the repeated word. God had established this covenant twice, three times already. You're going to have a son, and from him, all the nations will be blessed. There'll be many nations out of this one son. In Hebrews, it says that he was convinced that God would raise him from the dead. So firm was Abraham's faith, he was willing to go sacrifice the son of promise, of whom the entire covenant from God hinged upon. So we see Abraham's faith. We know from Galatians, uh, from Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, when God first called Abraham out of the land of Ur, and he said, go to the place that I will show you. And on his way, he went and then he arrived there. And it says, it says in Genesis chapter uh, 15 and verse 6, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Because he believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. Belief, that's the faith. And we see that repeated again in Romans chapter 4 and verse 3. It was his faith that was counted as righteousness. So Abraham was God's servant demonstrating unshakable faith. Another servant that we're going to look at is Jesus. Did Jesus have faith? Sometimes we don't think about Jesus having faith, but Jesus had faith. And He demonstrated it, and the New Testament teaches it clearly. Uh, first of all, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. If He's the founder of our faith, that means... The faith that we exercise, He was the first one to exercise it. Jesus was the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross. So for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. That means Jesus, saw, there's joy out here that is mine to have. That's the destination. I'm going to have this joy, this communion with the Father and communion with you and me. We know this from 1 John chapter 1. So for that joy, He endured the cross. To get to the joy, He had to go through the cross. And how, what brought Him through? What bridged Him from where He was to the joy that was to come? What got Him through the cross? It was His faith. He had confidence that the joy would follow the cross. And not, not an easy thing to believe. This is why I believe on the cross, he quotes Psalm 22, and when he breathes his last, he says, into your hands I commend my spirit. I think what he's saying is, now that I die, I'm trusting in my Father to do what he said he's going to do. In fact, we know in uh, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 13, it quotes Jesus prophetically. The words of Jesus, it says, I will put my trust in Him. Jesus is saying, I will put my trust in God. So we want to see how we can be servants of faith. We need to look to Jesus as a servant that was faithful, full of faith. And now, us. Let's think about us. You know, in my notes, 
I have different colors to help me keep track of where I'm at and what I'm doing. And in my personal notes, I do that too when I'm studying the Word of God. And green is the color I use for application. When I'm supposed to do something, green is just a trigger now in my life. When I see green, I think of growth. I think of plant growth and I think of spiritual growth. And so when I see the color green or I see something in God's Word where He wants me to do something, He wants me to change, I mark it in green. That's just a trigger for me. And so we're going to have a few of those triggers throughout this, throughout this sermon. But if you are going to be a servant of faith, here's a question you can ask yourself. Are you trusting God with the end of your story? See, Abraham did. Abraham went up that hill knowing, knife in hand, my son is going to be killed up there. But still, he trusted God with the end of his story. And that's where it gets difficult for us when times, it seems like it can't get any worse than it is right now. We always mistake our present chapter for the final chapter. But if we're going to be people of faith, men and women, boys and girls of faith, we're going to trust God with the end of our story. It may sound trite. I've heard it said before, but I don't know what else you can believe in. When in Romans it says, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So the, the end is good. And if it's not good, it's not the end yet. We have to trust God with the end of our story. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7 and 8. This also is describing the faith of Jesus. It says, the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I'm going to see it through. I'm going through the cross because I know there's joy on the other end. Whatever it might be that you are facing right now, maybe it's insurmountable difficulty. Maybe it's overwhelming circumstances. Maybe it's just mundane time, long time, not seeing any progress. Whatever it is, be like Jesus. Be like Abraham. Set your face like a flint. Be a servant of faith and see it through the cross to the joy. So we see a servant's faith. We also, in this passage, we see a treasured son. A treasured son. We see this in verse 2, verse 12. Uh, also, I think, verse 16. We see amplification here in the first description where he says, take your son. First of all, just say there, your son. There was a time when Abraham and Sarah thought no one would ever tell us to take our son because there's no way we're going to have a son. But God kept promising. You know the story. God kept promising the son. Finally, they had the son. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. You know, I... I I can't watch the same movies I used to watch where like maybe kids get kidnapped or children are abused. Before I had kids, I could handle watching. And you know, at the end, the, the hero comes through and kind of saves the day. I can't even start those movies anymore because I just, I love my children so much. I cannot imagine something bad happening to them. I, I don't know how I would live if one of my children went missing and we had no idea whether they were alive or dead or what circumstances they went through. I just, I can't even fathom that. And here, God is saying, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and go sacrifice him on the altar. The emphasis here is on how much he is loved and how he is the unique son. In verse 12, we see that amplification again. For now, I know you fear God, seeing you've not withheld your son, 
your only son. He says it again in verse 16. You have not withheld your son, your only son. And of course, this is just like what we read in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The son that he treasured. Multiple times in Christ's ministry, God boomed down from heaven and said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is my son. Listen to him. And so we see that commonality here. We also see in verse 6 another element in common with the gospel. We see a complicit execution. A complicit execution. At least, at very least, it's pictured. Perhaps it's even literal here, but in verse 6 it says, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. I, I just, I have to believe that that is, the imagery that comes to my mind is the cross being laid on Christ's back as he walked to Golgotha. And um, it, it's not directly in the text. Maybe we're reading between the lines, but it, it would appear that his son is old enough here that Isaac would have had to be willingly laid upon the altar and tied up because he was probably not a, a child. He was a young man. But either way, we see complicit execution. We see this in John chapter 10 and verse 18 where Christ said, no one takes my life from me. I give it freely. I can give it and I can take it back up again. And so we see complicit execution. God did not murder his child. God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit working in conjunction chose this path for you and for me. Not only do we see the complicit execution, the treasured son, faithful servant, we also see the provision of God. We see it anticipated in verse 7 when he says, I, I, I see a fire, I see the knife, I, I see the wood, but where's the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. What a beautiful text. God will provide it. Abraham believed it even then. He didn't know how it was going to happen, but he believed it. Um, and then we see the intercession of God. In the gospel, we see the intercession of God in the, in the resurrection. Death did not get the final say. He was not permanently dead. He was raised from the dead, so God interceded. Christ came back to life. Here we see the intercession take place before the execution when the voice from heaven calls out, Abraham, Abraham, in an emergency, stop, don't do it, don't drop the knife. And so we see the intercession of God. We also see the substitution from God. So we're a couple points behind here, Caleb. A servant of faith, a treasured son, a complicit execution, the provision of God, and then uh, the substitute, uh, the intercession of God, the intercession of God. That's where He preserved Him. And then finally, the substitution from God in verses 13 and 14. The substitution from God. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and beheld there was a ram caught in a thicket. And he knew it was from God because he called the place the Lord will provide. And the saying lasts even to the writing of this passage, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. But look at the end of verse 13. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Instead. That word instead. So precious to us. Listen, guy, you are due 
Lady, you are due. Our sins weigh heavy upon the purity of God and someone's going to pay for it. Either you in an eternity in hell or instead of you, His Son on the sacrifice on the altar. And so we see the substitution from God in this passage. We believe in the substitution from God in the Gospel. It's what we celebrate in communion. One last thing in verses 15 through 18. We don't want to end the story prematurely. We see the covenant sealed. Last common, very important element shared between this passage and the gospel story that we believe in is the covenant is sealed. Look at verse 15. The angel of the Lord um, called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this, because you have done this, and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. This isn't the first time Abraham heard this covenant. He heard it multiple times before his son was born. He heard it again, and his wife laughed about it. This would come years apart where God would revisit him and say, I'm swearing to you. I'm making a covenant with you, a promise. When you get a promise from God, you know it's going to come true. And then when he sees him offer Isaac, he says, now that I know that nothing stands between you and your belief in this covenant, now I swear even by myself. There was nothing better. God, I mean... He made the promise multiple times and now God says, I swear by myself I will do it. When God swears by his own name, you can count that it's going to happen. And my mind rushes forward to the Passover meal that Christ had with his disciples where he said, this is the covenant in my blood. When God seals a covenant with the blood of his own son, we know it's true. We know it's going to happen. We know that we will be redeemed from our wickedness, that we will enter into this new covenant, that He will purify us. And so we see a covenant sealed. Let me ask you this. Do you trust the covenant of Jesus? The weight of millennia bear down upon this question. Do you today, this morning, truly trust in the covenant of Jesus? That means you're certain regardless of your past, you put your faith in Christ, you will be redeemed. You will be with Him in heaven. There's nothing, no sin that you have committed in the past, no fear of any sin you may commit in the future. You are confident that Christ has redeemed you. Do you have as much confidence in the covenant that Abraham had in the covenant that was given to him? That is that Christ's disciples had when they heard Him say, this is the blood of my new covenant. Do you trust in the covenant? And if so, where is the covenant on display in your life? Abraham couldn't escape it. What he believed changed the way he behaved. Abraham, we're going to see this here in a little bit. Abraham did a lot of things differently than he would have if he wasn't believing in the covenant. How in your life is the covenant on display? The fact that Christ died for you, that He rose again, that He is going to take you out of the grave with Him, does that change your behavior in any way other than a Sunday morning? 
How is the covenant on display in your life? Now, I want to look a little bit at a couple more details in this passage. And this I'm really excited about. The geography is important here. There's details that are given. I think, why, why was that included? Particularly, I look at the end of the story, verse 19, where it says, So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Why? What? There's got to be significance there, I thought. So I did a little research. I started looking into Beersheba, and here's what I found. Remember, Abraham was called from Ur of the Chaldees to this land. Can we put that map up on the screen, uh, Caleb? So if you can see that, you have Beersheba in the bottom there. That should look familiar to you, the Mediterranean Sea. You have the Sea of Galilee. Um, you have the Dead Sea. Beersheba is that region at the bottom. You can see on the map, it's a desert place. Where Abraham was initially called was Ur. It's not even on the map. It's way on, all the way over. Blow it up real quick, Caleb, and show him the next picture there. So there you can see the red square marks the map I just showed you. Ur shows where he came from. And we know that where he came from was the center of urban civilization. He was a wealthy man. He had generational wealth. His fa- he was in his father's house. That doesn't mean it was failure to launch. It means he was helping run the family business in this urban area. And God called him out to the desert, to Beersheba. And this too is a theme that we see in Scripture. The holy man's quest. Where God calls someone from comfort, from civilization, from amenities, and He calls them into the wilderness. Abraham was the first one. Who else can we think that followed that same hero's quest? The holy man's quest. Moses did, didn't he? Out of the palace, into the backside of the wilderness. Who else do we see do that? Jesus Christ, in two different ways. First of all, before he started his ministry, what did he do? He went out into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days. But not only that, he left the splendor of heaven and came to a dusty patch of earth called the Middle East to live for 30 years as a human. So he descended from the heaven to the earth. All of this is this recurring theme of the holy man's quest, the classic hero. You know, all, all of, all of literature has this hero figure in it. And, you know, when my kids hear the word hero, they think of a superhero. But probably when Jonathan hears the word hero, he thinks of that classic literature concept of a hero. Right? And there's, it's, that hero resonates with us. We want a man that's been tested. We want a man that went out on the limb. We want a man or a woman like a Frodo Baggins or a Articus Finch or Scout. Or someone like Robin Hood. These individuals that are classic heroes. What do they have in common? Um, I heard, I, I read uh, this description of a classic hero, and I thought, this describes Jesus. This is an unbeliever. His name is Raymond Chandler, but he writes about that classic hero type. And here's what he describes. He says. Down these mean streets a man must go who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. He is the hero. He is everything. 
He must be a complete man and a common man and yet an unusual man. He must be, to use a rather weathered phrase, a man of honor by instinct, by inevitability, without thought of it, certainly and certainly without saying it. He must be the best man in his world and a good man in any world. He is a man of honor, if in one thing, he is a man of honor in all things. He is a common man. He has a sense of character. He has a range of awareness that startles you, but it belongs to him by right because it belongs to the world he lives in. If there were enough like him, the world would be a very safe place to live in without becoming too dull to be worth living in. And you know... We read stories, we watch these stories, and we think, yes, that's, we admire that kind of a man. And deep down, we hope that there really is that kind of a man. Abraham was that kind of a man that moved from civilization to the wilderness because God was calling him to go. Jesus Christ is that prototype. He is the natural hero that we all long for. We see it on display. So let me ask you this, another application question. How is Jesus the hero of your story? If Jesus were redacted from your story, how different would it be? You know, I told me and uh, Zach were working on a funeral together and, and he had never done a funeral before. And sometimes you have to do funerals for unbelievers. And and I and I told him, my, my goal when I'm doing a funeral for an unbeliever is I'm, I'm just trying to provide comfort. I'm trying to be respectful it may not be an opportunity for me to preach the gospel. And Zach stopped me. He said, Ryan, I just, I just want you to know, if you ever do my funeral, you better preach the gospel. And, and I said, I, obviously, yes. You know, I, I, My hope is that I live such a life that you couldn't honor me as a person, that you couldn't give my funeral without giving the gospel. Because Jesus is the hero of my story. He's the hero of your story. In what way is he the hero of your story? But more importantly, like the, the character description said, if everyone were like him, if the world were full of these kind of people, the world would be safe to live in and it would still be an interesting place to be worth living in. How are you becoming more like Jesus? How are you becoming more like your hero? It's not just going to come naturally. There's only one way that it does come naturally, and that's just by spending consistent time with him. People rub off. You want to know who you're going to be like in 10 years? Look at your three closest friends. That's who you're going to be like. So the more time you spend with Jesus, the more you're going to be like him. But if you want to accelerate that process of being like Jesus, you've got to be intentional. You have to be specific. You have to think about, what do I need to put off? What do I need to put on? What do I need to set my mind upon? How I, how, what behaviors do I need to change? And so we need to be like Jesus. A couple more things with the land of Beersheba that I want to talk about here. It's interesting and very critical in this story. If you're still there in chapter 22, just look back just one chapter. At the, at the end of chapter 21, you have something very interesting happen here. And it happens in Beersheba because this is where he's living. You have the king uh, come, and he sees, God is with you in all that you do, verse 22. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will also deal kindly with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I swear... The land was Beersheba. See, back in those days, 
the, the land ownership wasn't as clear a thing. You used the land. You would graze on the land and then go to the other land. And Abraham was in this land as a foreigner. And the king could see, God's hand is on you. I want to make a covenant with you that you will deal kindly with me and with this land. And then Abraham brings up and says, listen, I dug a well. And you guys are refusing me access to this well. The king said, oh, we'll make this, let's make this right. And Abraham offered seven ewes and said, okay, I'm paying. I'm making it known to you. I'm the one that dug this well. And now by this payment, you're giving me access to this well. This well belongs to me. So it's interesting because we see they were surviving in the land. And Abraham was taking his his mandate all the way from Genesis 1, which is to have dominion over the land, whereas they were just grazing the land. He dug a well, said, all right, in a way, I'm staking a claim. And after he made this treaty with the king, he also planted a tree by the well. We see that uh, down in verse is it 32. He made the covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Michael, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham went and planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham journeyed many days in the land of the Philistines. Now, why is this so critical? Listen to me. This is very interesting. It took me a while to get there. First of all, this covenant, he says, the king started the covenant. And then he says, it's going to be to my children and to my posterity and to the land itself. Abraham dies. Isaac is there now. The king comes to Isaac and makes the same covenant with Isaac. Okay, so this proves that this covenant is going to outlive Abraham. The fact that Abraham planted a tree indicates Abraham said, this is going to, this is going to outlive me and my children. And then when Isaac was there, they had, the, the Philistines had buried the well. And Isaac said, you guys buried this well. We made a covenant. This belongs to us. They dug the well up. Okay, so now this to me indicates no matter what happens, they have a claim on this land. And then what happens? Eventually, they end up in Egypt for 430 years before they come back and take the land from the Philistines. And you will hear the accusations. I've heard it before. What right did Israel have to go and kick the Philistines out of the land and take that land? They were foreigners. They were in Egypt. And then they come. That's not The land isn't there. Isn't theirs. But from this passage, we see, oh no, certainly was theirs. They had made a covenant with the land itself and with the inhabitants of the land. That if you deal justly with us, we'll deal justly with you. Did the Philistines deal justly with Israel? No, they did not. But they had a claim to the land. I think that's very interesting. And I think that takes us beyond just this concept of type. But we're seeing that this is more than just a type. This is serious. One last thing about Beersheba. This is on the southern tip of where we know the maps of Israel to be. In fact, when they talked about the, the promised land, they said from Dan to Beersheba. Dan was the northernmost part. Beersheba was the southernmost part. And when Solomon became king, he put up gates. We want to put that picture up there, Caleb. He, he built gates. And these are there right now. You can go and look at these. These are the gates of Beersheba. And what was interesting about these gates is 
they matched. They were identical to the gates that Solomon built all the way at the top of the map in Dan. So now, all the way back then, he's saying, listen, this is no longer just a conglomerate of tribes roaming around this land. We got a gate in the north. We got a gate in the south. This is now one nation. And it all started all the way back here when Abraham lived in Beersheba. So, one last thing. Let's look at Mount Moriah. You know, if this was a type, you would have things representing other things. But I think this is more than a type because we don't just, we have an actual sun. We have a sacrifice. We have substitution. And we have a mountain here that does not just represent another mountain. We have the actual mountain. What was Mount Moriah? Put, put that map up there so they can see where it is. You can see Beersheba at the bottom. It's kind of hard to see, but towards the top of the body of water, you see the uh, Mount Moriah. So you can see why it took them three days to get there. And why was this mountain significant? Abraham offered Isaac on this mountain. A thousand years later, David offered a very significant sacrifice on the very same mountain. David has sinned, had sinned as king, and God had cast a plague upon the people. And this, it was David's sin, the people were paying the price for it. And this broke David's heart. And he pleaded with God, he said, I'm the one that sinned, why are you punishing these people? Just tell me what to do and I'll make it right. And God said, go to this place and offer a sacrifice. So David went, he offered a sacrifice on that same mountain a thousand years later, and God cleansed the land of the plague. Then David's son, Solomon, built the temple, the first temple, on that mountain. And then, of course, the temple was destroyed. Seventy years later, the second temple was rebuilt. In Christ's time, Herod expanded the temple. And that's why it was known as Herod's temple. And then in 70 AD, it was destroyed. So now put, put that picture up. You can see remnants of the temple. That big, massive wall there, I believe that's the southern wall. The kind of retaining wall that led up to the temple grounds. So for, for all those years, thousands of Levitical sacrifices were made in the exact same spot that David's sacrifice was made and in the exact same spot that Isaac was offered to God in a sacrifice. And today, the temp- this right now is the most valuable piece of property on the planet. And it's greatly contested. Why? Expand that picture just a little bit. The Dome of the Rock, right there where the temple once stood. The Islam, Islam's holy place. In that dome, there's the rock that is so important to them. The temple can't be built as long as that is there. I think Jesus references this in Luke chapter 21 and verse 24 where it says, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So this mountain that you see before you right there has a history of sacrifices upon it. That's where all the Levitical sacrifices would take place until the temple was destroyed. Christ's sacrifice did not take place on that mountain, for he had to go outside the gates, as we read. He went outside the great gates to be sacrificed, but... This brings our attention. Isaac's sacrifice, David's sacrifice, thousands of Levitical sacrifices, Christ's sacrifice brings our attention now to the communion wafers and juice that you hold in your hand. 
all of these elements that we see in the story of Abraham and Isaac collide here in Christ on the cross.